All right, well, good evening, everyone. Good to see everyone here tonight. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 14? We haven't met for a few weeks, so let me just remind you, last time we were in Exodus, we actually uh, studied the uh, Exodus itself and how God brought his people out of Egypt, finally, after the... Uh, Tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And uh, he brought them out, though, with a strong and outstretched arm and brought them into the wilderness. And uh, we read in chapter 14, starting with verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, They are bewildered in the land, or by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, if you were to um, look at a Bible map sometime later on tonight or tomorrow, whatever, uh, you will see that what God did was he took them not on the northern route, which is the main trade route. That would be the route that Moses took 40 years earlier when he fled from Egypt and was in Midian for 40 years before God brought him back, the burning bush and you know, so on, brought him back to Egypt as a deliverer, right? But uh, that was the main route, and uh, but this time the Lord leads his people on a southern route. And uh, as we saw a few weeks ago, if you were here and saw our Exodus documentary, uh, God led them on a route that took them through a mountain region. And they had to kind of serpentine between mountains uh, through valleys, and that's how God led them to the Red Sea. Now, he was actually leading them into a trap which would be their first real test of faith after having come out of Egypt. Now, you have to understand, this was going to begin a walk of faith. And faith is like a muscle, as people have likened it to. It has to be stretched and it has to be exercised before it can grow. So God wants to, right up front, he wants to begin to teach them lessons in faith because they're going to need it. As they uh, learn to trust him all the years that they're going to wind up in the wilderness, of course, at this time, uh, God didn't intend for them to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, he was only going to bring them out there for a few months, maybe a year, to get them to finish the tabernacle and the priestly garments and establish the priesthood. Then he was going to lead them right into the promised land. We're going to see that it didn't quite work out that way, and they wound up in the wilderness for 40 years. But um, this was to begin their walk of faith, and God right at the outset wanted to test their faith, even as he does with us, all right? God wants to test our faith on a continual basis because it's how it grows. As he stretches us by getting us to trust him for bigger and greater things, our faith grows stronger. Now in verse 5 we read, Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people, and they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? Right? It's like they're just waking up going, What have we done? You know, this was our labor force, okay? And we've let him go. We've got to get him back. Verse 6, so he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. 
And uh, also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea besides Piharoth, which was a mountain, and before Baal Zephon, also a mountain. Now, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that besides the 600 charioteers that Pharaoh brought out with him to chase the children of Israel, there were another 49,000 horsemen and about 200,000 foot soldiers. So all together, we have a, a group of fighting men, about 250,000 strong, from the strongest army on the face of the earth. Egypt was the world superpower at this time. They had the strongest army on the face of the earth, and Pharaoh doesn't hold anything back. He gets all his guys. He gets the best of the best. He takes all of his chariots, and they're going after Israel to bring the Jews back into captivity. Now, the narrative tells us, and you have to kind of picture this with me, as God is leading them through this mountain range. I mean, there's mountains everywhere, and God is working them through the mountains, through valleys, serpentining back and forth, as we said. Eventually, they came out onto a sandy peninsula. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But you have to understand, they came out on the sandy peninsula from the side, all right? And they came out, and so the Red Sea was to their left. To their right was a mountain called Piharoth, and right in front of them was a mountain called Baal Savan. They were trapped, is the idea. And remember now, who led them here? God did, okay? If you don't understand that or realize that, you're not going to understand the point of the story. God led them into this, uh, this trap to teach them some very important lessons in faith. The only thing at this point that stood before Pharaoh's army and the children of Israel was God's Shekinah glory, the presence of God in the form of a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. We're talking, as we've tried to give you the idea of how big this was, uh, it could have been uh, several miles high and maybe a mile or two wide. We're talking a giant. It gave uh, shade to all the children of Israel during the hot days, you know, the, the sunlight. Uh, and at night it became a, a, a pillar of fire to give them warmth and light. So it was a pretty, wasn't a little tiny thing, right? It was a big, massive pillar that uh, was the very presence of God. Verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us? to bring us up out of Egypt. Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Now, guys, this begins 40 years of murmuring and complaining uh, that Edward G. Robinson and the children of Israel did against Moses and especially the Lord, okay? And... Um, very difficult time for Moses. Forty years of putting up with this, right? And uh, at one point, uh, I think we're going to study it in Exodus. It might be in, uh, in Numbers. 
where Moses basically has had enough and said, Lord, you know, these aren't my kids. I, you know, I didn't give birth to these people. They're your kids. Why am I stuck with them? All right? Why do I have to put up with their constant... You know, I really... My heart goes out to Moses. He didn't have it easy. You know, it just shows us, though, after having suffered, now listen, over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And of course, this group wasn't enslaved for 400 years, obviously, but their forefathers for 400 years had endured slavery in Egypt. And it was a very bitter slavery. They were made to work very hard, all right? Here God delivers them. But the first time a little adversity comes their way, they're murmuring and complaining, I wish we were back in Egypt. I, we didn't want to come out here in the first place. You know, you talked us into it kind of a thing. Look, there are many that seem to prefer a life of slavery to Satan than a life of victory and freedom to God. Here's the catch. To have a life of victory and freedom to God, you have to walk by faith. And faith is not easy, right? Faith is not easy. Sometimes it can be very difficult when God asks us to, you know, was it easy for Peter when Jesus said, step out of the boat and come walk to me? Was that easy? Was it easy for, you know, any one of a number of biblical characters we could think of who were faced with some very severe testings of their faith? It's not easy to walk by faith. God was asking this group of people to believe something spectacular, something miraculous, that God had put them in this trap because God was going to make a way where there was no way to teach all of us. And Paul says these lessons, these stories in the Old Testament were written for our learning, that by studying the lives of these people and how God worked in their lives, we would have hope in our situations, right? But a life of faith is not easy. That's true. But listen to me, when compared to a life of slavery to Satan, man, it's no contest. We as Christians, okay, we know what it's like to walk with God. We, some of us have been Christians many years. And we know at times it was very difficult, right? God always came through. He always does. But at times it was very difficult. But I don't know about you, but never once did I ever say to myself, I wish I was back in the world. Oh, boy, did I have fun when I was back in the world. Well, certainly there were some good times. The Bible says sin brings pleasure for a season. If sin wasn't pleasurable, nobody would get involved with it. But look it, okay, after the party was over and you spent the rest of the night in the bathroom, you know, sick, or you got so in bondage to the alcohol, now you had to have it just to function. It was no more fun. It was just, I work with a guy, an older gentleman, he's gone now. He was such a bad alcoholic, he told me that he'd actually have to put a, a glass full of vodka in his medicine cabinet. Because in the middle of the night, he'd have to go to that medicine cabinet and down the entire glass of vodka just so he wouldn't start getting the shakes. This is the kind of bondage that people are into Satan. And you know what? Yeah, God is saying, follow me. It's not going to always be easy. But I will deliver you from that hopeless, painful bondage that you were into the devil. I'm going to be your master. But I'm a loving master. I have good in mind for you. I won't try to kill you like the devil wanted to do. So verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. In other words, you don't have to do anything. Just stand still and watch God work. Okay, verse 15, And the Lord said to Moses, 
why do you cry to me? Now you say, well, what do you mean? What's going on here? Well, Moses, the people were terrified. So Moses is a true leader. He gets up there and basically calms the people. Don't be afraid. God's on the throne kind of a thing. You know, he's going to take care of this. What are you worried about? He's God. He can do anything. After he comes to the people, he runs somewhere where he can be alone, falls in his face and says, Oh, God! Oh, God! Help us! What do we do, Lord? See, we leaders can put up a good front. We're often just as scared as you are. But we want to encourage you, okay? We want to, you know... And then we go and run and we fall on our faces before God and cry out. Like Moses did. And God said, Moses, why, why are you crying to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Well, that was the problem. Okay, because basically the Red Sea was now in front of them. But um, he says, tell the children of Israel to go forward. You know, I think it's an important point. Let me just make it quickly. There is a time to pray, and then there is a time to act. If your house is on fire, it's not a time to hold a prayer meeting. It's a time to get out, okay? Some Christians, they don't exercise good judgment, okay? I mean, certainly prayer should be our first course of action. And no doubt the children of Israel have been praying for centuries to be delivered from Egypt. That day had come, all right? But right now, God is saying, look, this is, at this moment, not that prayer is ever a bad thing, but at this moment, you know, let's not have a prayer meeting, Moses. Get the children of Israel. We, you need to move. You need to move, right? Verse 15, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Verse 17. And indeed I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. And they shall follow them. In other words, the Egyptians shall follow the children of Israel. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know. that I, They shall know once and for all is the idea. That I am the Lord. When I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Guys, let me just remind you one more time that our impossibilities, listen, are God's opportunities to show himself mighty on our behalf. If you can come to a place in your Christian walk where when you are, your back is up against the wall, everything looks like it's crumbling around you and you have no recourse, you exhausted every avenue of opportunity, right? And you're at your wit's end now. There's nothing left to do but to cry out to God. Don't panic. It's God's way of showing you. By putting you in a situation that goes way beyond your ability, it's his way of showing you he's a God who can take care of any situation. To our God, nothing shall be impossible, right? And really, you'd have to be walking in the Spirit to do this, but get excited. Get excited because as soon as you're out of options... Now you have to stand still and see God work. You know, be still and know that I am God. Too often we don't do that because we're so busy running around trying to figure out a way out ourselves that we don't really give God time to show us he can take care of it, you know? Oh, you know, the car just blew up. I need $1,000 to fix the motor or whatever. So what do I do? I take the credit card right away and put the credit card down and pay with the credit card. I don't really pray. I may pray afterwards. All right, God, now pay the credit card bill. I'm not so sure the Lord wants to work that way. I think what he wants to do, he, and I'm not saying he won't pay the credit card bill because he loves us, but how much more powerful a lesson in faith if you stopped and prayed, Lord, what am I going to do here? I could use the credit card. That's not money I actually have. 
But Lord, I give it to you. You know I need a car. Lord, will you work this out? And to see God do something miraculous, wow, that's a really powerful lesson of faith. Anybody can use a credit card. That's not going to build your faith that much. But if you ask God to show you how he can provide, wow. Uh, when he, and I've seen him do it in my life. It, it's really exciting to see God do something you know is God. Okay, It's a God thing, as they say. Okay, um, But so often, guys, we look at the situation through the eyes of flesh and not through the eyes of faith. And when we do that, we feel all is lost. It's hopeless. Don't we do that? One of my favorite stories in the Bible with regard to this comes out of 2 Kings 6. You don't have to turn. You, you know it, okay? It, uh, it revolves around a prophet named Elisha. Elisha took over for Elijah, okay? After Elijah was taken up in a fiery chariot, Elisha became the next prophet God anointed. And both Elijah and Elisha were pretty dynamic prophets. God used them to work all kinds of miracles, right? So, one day, the king of Syria, whose name was Ben-Hadad, uh, was wanting to, uh, they were warring, Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And the king of Syria wanted to lay an, amb uh, lay an ambush for the king of Israel to capture him, no doubt kill him, and so on, and, and, and conquer the area. Well, every time the, the king of Syria laid an ambush for the king of Israel, because he would, you know, king would go a certain way, and he knew the route and all, and so he would lay in an ambush. God would speak to Elisha, who would tell the king of Israel, don't go that way. King of Syria's laid a trap for you. All right? So the king of Israel would go some other way. Well, he escaped uh, Ben-Hadad's trap so many times that the king of Syria figured he had a spy in his midst. So he calls his generals together and says, look, which one of you guys is for the king of Israel? Because I don't want to use a spy because every time I lay an ambush for this guy... He, he knows I'm where we are. He goes some other way. And his general said, no, king, look, you got it all wrong. We're loyal. But there's a prophet in Israel. Man, you can't talk to your wife in your own bedroom about what he doesn't know about it. So the king said, who is he? Well, it's Elisha. Well, where is he? Well, he's, living, he's in staying in Dothan. Let's go. They marched all night, and they surrounded the city of Dothan. So in the morning when Gehazi, Elisha's servant, goes outside to draw water, he sees that the entire city has been surrounded by the Syrians. He panics. He's looking at things through the eyes of flesh. He runs into uh, Elisha. He's probably brushing his teeth or having his coffee. I mean, it's the morning time, you know. And he says, Master, we've had it. The, the Syrians have surrounded the city. And Elisha, I love it, calmly looks at his servant and says, Don't you understand? that them that are with us are greater than them that are with him. Lord, open his eyes. Gehazi goes back outside, I love it. And he sees now that all around the army of the Syrians, surrounding them, are fiery chariots and pretty big guys that are glowing, okay? Angels. All of a sudden it went from, alas, we've had it, to, oh, alas, they've had it. We have to understand, as the Bible says, the Lord camps around those who belong to him to protect them. Isn't that awesome? It's just that we look at things so often from the eyes of flesh, from a human perspective. You know, when we gave our hearts to Jesus, we became the family of God. What father doesn't protect his kids? Our Heavenly Father watches over us, 
he protects us. We have to stop looking at things through the eyes of flesh and going, alas, I've had it. Where's the money coming from to pay the rent? How am I going to fix the car? Look, God's with us. And if God is for us, who can be against us, right? Uh, Martin Luther said, one plus God is a, is a majority. Okay? Back to Exodus 14, verse 19. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind. So the pillar of, of cloud now moves from before them, because he was leading them into this trap, now moves behind them to stand between the children of Israel and the approaching Egyptian army. All right, verse 20. So it came between the camp of the, of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, to the Egyptians, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Guys, this is so often the case where God is manifesting himself. To some, their eyes are opened and they see the light. We use that expression. Well, I saw the light. When God is moving and God is working, often there will be those who will see the light um, and they will know that God is on the throne. But then there are others, even though God is working, they see nothing but darkness. And the issue is the heart of each person, guys. It's not that God, I don't, I'm convinced, it's not that God blinds some because he's capricious about it and lets others see the truth. I believe God wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth, Jesus Christ. And some do, and of course, they see the light. Others, though, God is working, God is moving, and to them, all they see is darkness still. And the issue is not God, really, it's the heart of each person. If they want to see or not want to see, turn to Matthew 13. Now, you remember how in Jesus' ministry, he came teaching very plainly. Uh, he taught very simply. Some believed. He, he gathered a following of disciples. But uh, some did not believe. Many did not believe. At one point, he stops teaching very openly and plainly and begins to teach in parables. Now, his disciples are a little taken back by that. They asked him about it at one point. Why do you teach the multitudes in parables? Let me read the, this uh, passage. Matthew 13, verse 10. So the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Okay, these kind of cryptic stories. Okay. He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And he's, he's talking primarily about the Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, and so on, the leadership of Israel, who did not want to see. That's the key. They did not, they thought they had truth. They were not open to anybody challenging their concept of truth, especially not some itinerant carpenter, okay? So, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even that which he uh, Mark says, or Luke, I think, says, even that which he seems to have will be taken away from him. What's he talking about? Light. He's talking about spiritual light. He is saying, look, if a person lives up to the light that they have, God will give them more light. 
If they're faithful to the little truth that they have and they accept it and want to know more, God will give them more truth, more light. But there are people that they have truth. They've gone to church maybe all of their lives, grown up in church. They have read the Bible maybe, but they're just not really that excited about anything. They're, you know, they're just not really wanting to know any more than what they've already had to learn in Sunday school or Awanas. And so what happens is, after a while, because they don't really love the truth, the light of God, eventually God then withdraws whatever little light that they had. And now they're walking in complete darkness. It's as Paul said about, uh, to the Thessalonians, he says that, you know, there are those who reject the love of the truth. God is offering them the love of the truth, his light, his gospel, that they might be saved, but they reject it. And because they've rejected it, God has sent them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. If you don't love the truth of God, you don't deserve the truth of God is the idea. If God gives you truth, live up to that light because you know what? If you harden your heart, he'll remove it. It's like the seed that was planted, okay, and the birds came and snatched it away. The seed was the word in the parable of the sower. Why, why didn't the seed penetrate the soil? It was hard, right? So a lot of people have hard hearts. It's not that God isn't giving them the truth or the seed of his word. They just don't, they don't care. They don't want to hear it. They're not interested. They want to party. They want to live for the world because that's where they're really of. They're of the world. He's in verse 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. I mean, I'm giving them the truth, but they don't want to hear it or really perceive it, understand it. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and shall not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. See, it's not God. Some people say, well, God in his sovereignty has blinded some, and he's opened the eyes of others. That's not what I'm reading here. It's their heart that is, they're determining whether or not they're going to receive God's truth or not. And if they reject it, then the lights go out. Okay, Isaiah talked about this. Hearing you will hear and not understand, seeing you shall see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people has grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, repent, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Why? Because your hearts are open. You want to know the truth of God, right? All right, back to Exodus 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. Now, it took them most of the night. Uh, to. This, it's about an eight mile uh, from one coast to the other side. Uh, so eight miles, uh, about two and a half million Jews had to travel. And God made sure that the, the Egyptians didn't overtake them until they had crossed. 
And then as the Egyptians tried to cross, he, you know, the Shekinah glory withdrew, the Egyptians started to cross, and that's when God began to give them some problems. Um, he looked down and, and uh, saw them there trying to cross on dry ground. The Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. I'm sorry, backing up a little bit more. Um, verse 25, so we took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Well, duh. I mean, how long would it take for you to figure that out? You had 10 plagues where he was basically showing his hand strong for the Israelites and so on. Verse 26, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh they came, uh, that came into the sea after them, after the children of Israel, not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work of the Lord, which uh, the great work of the Lord, which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord, and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. Now, <clears throat> there are those skeptics, and there are many of them, who tell us that the children of Israel really didn't cross the Red Sea. It says Red Sea, but no, it's no. Uh, they really didn't cross the Red Sea. What they did was they crossed a shallow marshy area to the north of the Red Sea, known as the Sea of Reeds. And typically this is about five or six inches deep. And what happened, they say, is a strong wind blew all that night. And so what was five or six inches now was only a couple inches. And therefore what the children of Israel did was they walked through the marshy Sea of Reeds to the other side. And that's what happened. Well, I don't know, my Bible says they walked through on dry ground, first of all, right? Um, but they say, well, see, well, it wasn't really a miracle. All right? It was just that you had this windy situation and this little marshy uh, body of water, and that's what happened. Look, if that's what happened, then I do think a miracle took place. Okay? In fact, I think it's a bigger miracle than God parting the Red Sea. And that is how the strongest and best trained army in the world and all their horses drowned in two inches of water. You know, people come up with these explanations or explain away the Bible, and they always come away looking so foolish. Why not just believe that God's a powerful God and he works miracles? I tell people who have trouble with miracles, do you believe the very first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? Most times they'll say, yeah, I believe that. Well, if you believe that God could speak the entire universe into existence with just a word, then is it so difficult to believe he could part the Red Sea or Jesus could walk on water or turn water into wine or raise the dead God could give life in the first place to a person why can't he give them life back again once they die I don't know to me it's it, it's just not that hard to understand understand or believe right but listen to the language okay again Exodus you know just read the passage carefully Exodus 14:22. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea. 
out into the little couple inches of marshy pond, okay, into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And the waters were to them a what? A wall on their right hand and on their left. You have to turn to these two, Isaiah 51, verse 10. Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? Psalm 106, verse 11. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Two inches of water doesn't cover too many people. Okay? Unless you're very small. And back to Exodus 14, verse 28 again to 30. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. Verse 30. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall, again, a wall to them on their right hand and left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Guys, people don't get washed up onto the seashore of a shallow marshy pond, is the idea, okay? In our Exodus documentary, we saw the route that it was the one that God probably led them, uh, you know, uh, on as they, again, serpentine through the mountain range, the one that finally led them to the shores of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is a finger of the Red Sea. So it was the Red Sea. But it's a route that leads through mountains and stops on a sandy peninsula called Nueva Beach. Now, you can Google Nueva Beach. It's spelled uh, N-U-W-E-I-B-A. N-U-W-E-I-B-A. You can Google Nuba Beach and you can find... I did this today, just to, and I saw the documentary, but I wanted to refresh my, my memory with it. So I Googled Nueva Beach, and, and sure enough, there were Google satellite images you could zero in on, okay? And um, if you didn't watch the documentary, let me try to explain to you what the documentary showed. There are several points, I think three altogether, that historians claim could have been the place where the children of Israel crossed over the Red Sea to the other side. What they have done is they've used sonar, scientists have, and um, unmanned subs with cameras on them, of course, and they have uh, done underwater, um, you know, they've looked underwater at these three sites. Two of them, uh, one in particular to the south, after about a mile, it drops off so steeply, and it's got nothing but jagged coral, uh, rocks, it would be impossible for people to travel down that steep of an of a underwater canyon is what it is, uh, drops, I don't know how many hundreds of feet, maybe a thousand or more, uh, impossible for them to have crossed there. And the same thing with the one way to the north. This one at Nuba Beach, and this was fascinating to see this on the documentary because they took you underneath the water. And they showed you how that this one area, you know, and if you look on the uh, west coast of the Gulf of Aqaba, it's all mountains. All of a sudden you have this one sandy beach, this peninsula that comes out into the Red Sea, Nueva Beach. And they took subs and they went under the water and it, it showed that from where the beach area is, it slowly uh, descends, maybe 100 feet, okay, levels out, and what you have is a sandy ledge or a walkway where they could easily have crossed over, 
On either side, now this thing is, I don't know how wide it is. I forgot to check how wide. It's pretty wide, though. But on either side of this sandy uh, uh, walkway under the waters there, and of course the waters would have been parted, it drops off again like this canyon stuff, okay? And this, this is the only place where you had a staging area where people came out of the mountainous re region onto a gigantic sandy beach, a peninsula, and then as God part of the water, they walked down a, a very a gentle slope to the bottom, maybe 100 feet or so, crossed over. This is the area that we're talking about. This has all been confirmed. It's a fascinating study. And not only that, they have found chariot wheels and spokes. Of course, the wood material has been eaten away a long time ago. But what coral does is it attaches itself onto solid objects, uh, thus uh, taking the form of those objects. So that when the material itself decays away, like the wood of the wheels, the coral still remains, maintains the shape. And they know from studying those wheel patterns that the spoke pattern of that particular chariot wheel was the same exact kind they were using at the time of the Exodus. History has confirmed that. So we're seeing all kinds of ways in which God is proving or is validating this story. It's amazing. So. God began to teach his people, again, right away, lessons in faith. He began to teach them lessons in faith. The first lesson, in fact, the whole lesson of chapter 14 is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? And I'd like to add one other thought. With our God, nothing shall be impossible. Now, if you have those two thoughts in your head when you start your walk with Christ, or right now, as you're walking with Jesus, if you make those two things overarching principles, that if God is for us, who can be against us, okay, God's not our enemy, no matter how bad we blow, he forgives us, he loves us, he's redeemed us, and nothing is impossible for our God, tell me that's not going to really bolster your walk of faith. And that's what God's want, God wants to do, increase our faith. Now, you'd think that uh, this would have made a lasting impression on God's people. And for a little while it did, but chapter 15 starts out, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord, and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So look, they entered into the wilderness now. They've crossed over the Red Sea, and they've entered the wilderness with praise and joy. Praise and joy. Singing, right? Spiritually speaking, the wilderness represents immaturity. But at this point, that's okay. They, they had just been born as a nation out of Egypt. It's fine for a newborn child to be immature. Nothing wrong with that, okay? So at this point, God accepted their immaturity because they were just birthed out of Egypt, and he was teaching them lessons in faith already for them to grow up and so on. The problem was, so they entered their walk of faith with joy and singing, the problem was their joy and praise didn't last long before it turned into, into murmuring and complaining. Look, a spiritual high brought on by an experience where God has done something miraculous or has worked in a powerful way, no matter how dramatic that thing was. I mean, sometimes, they'll, you know, in their day, to see the ten plagues, and now to watch God part literally the sea 
So they walked through on dry ground and then brought the waters back to drown the Egyptian army? I mean, that was pretty dramatic, pretty dynamic, right? But even that couldn't sustain them. See, miracles, as fantastic as they are, I would love to see one. I can't ever say that I've seen one myself except the one where I got saved. Okay, that was a miracle that we tend to discount. But, you know, I'd love to see a miracle. But let me just say this to you. You can't live on miracles. You can't live on spiritual experiences. There are dear brothers and sisters who try to. It's like trying to live off of cotton candy or junk food. Not that miracles are junk food, but if you're going to try to live off them spiritually, yeah, then they become junk food. They, they tickle your fancy. They, they're exciting, but they don't have any nutrients or nourishment within them to grow your faith. All right? And that's the idea, okay? There are dear brothers and sisters who are always running after signs and wonders. And they're perpetually in a state of, of immaturity, spiritually speaking. The only way for us to grow in Christ is to abide in Christ. Now, what did Jesus say? If you abide in my word, right, you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Uh, if you abide in me, you will abide in my word and vice versa. The only way we're going to grow and be nourished is by the, the consistent study of God's word. Some people come to a church like ours and it seems very boring to them because people aren't hanging off the chandeliers, you know. There's not a lot of emotion. Well, I, I don't know. I have a lot of emotion when I study God's word. It's inward. It's gratitude. It's thanksgiving. I'm, I'm taking it in. I'm, I'm feeling strengthened by the truths that God is presenting. That's how we grow, right? So we all come out of Egypt, which is a type of the world, and into our new life uh, in Christ with joy and praise. How long we continue in that joy and praise depends, listen, on what we choose to focus on, either on experiences or on God himself. Now, Julia, who led us in worship tonight, didn't know I was going to talk about this, I didn't call her and ask her to, it's the Holy Spirit, no doubt, uh, sing or lead us in the, the hymn, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. But I want to talk briefly about that hymn. We sang it tonight, but maybe, and of course, you probably all knew it before you came here tonight, but did you really know the background that gave birth to that hymn? It was a song that was written by Horatio G. Spafford. One historian recounts the whole story this way, and I quote, Horatio G. Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago. In 1873, he and his family planned a vacation trip to Europe. While in Great Britain, he planned to help his good friend Dwight Moody and Ira Sankey, whom he had financially supported with their evangelistic tour. So it was a little vacation for the family, but an opportunity for Spafford, devoted Christian, to work alongside with Moody and Sankey, who were in Europe for a evangelistic crusade. Spafford sent his wife and four girls, ages 11, 9, 7, and 2, ahead while he finished up some last-minute business in Chicago. He told his wife he would join her and their children in Europe a few days later. His plan was to take another ship. Mrs. Spafford and her four daughters boarded the French ocean liner Villa de Harve and set sail for Europe. Four days into their voyage, on November 21, 1873, the French ocean liner collided with a powerful iron-hulled Scottish ship, the Loch Urn. 
Within 12 minutes, the Villa de Harve sunk and 226 of its 313 passengers died, including the Spafford's four daughters. A sailor rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna, still alive. That was Mrs. Spafford. He pulled her into the boat, and they were picked up by, by another large vessel, which nine days later landed them in Cardiff, Wales. From there, she wired her husband a message which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Mr. Spafford later framed the telegram and placed it in his office. Mr. Spafford booked passage of the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife. With the ship about four days out, the captain called Spafford to his cabin and told him that they were over the place where his children went down. According to Bertha Spafford Vester, a daughter born after the tragedy, Spafford wrote, It is well with my soul while on his journey. It goes like this, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And the chorus, it is well with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. Guys, the only way a Christian can sing a song like that, it is well with my soul, in such a dire situation as the one Mr. Spafford and his family went through, was because he, his wife, and all those who are Christians that can sing a song like that in their darkest night circumstances, the only way that's possible is to have your focus on God and not on your circumstances. Let me just tell you this. The sooner you get this nailed down in your heart, the better off you're going to be. Listen to me. We sang it tonight. Julia, thank you. Everything we were, I was teaching, you led us in, okay? I should, we could have just went home after she was done leading us in worship. Um, remember this song? We have a good, good father, okay? We have a good, good Do we really believe that we sang it? I'm sure that everyone in this room at this moment would say, of course we have a good father. We worship and serve a good God. But what about when you lose a loved one suddenly? Or after serving God faithfully for many years, you've been diagnosed with a terminal disease. And you're feeling way too young to die uh, at this point. Are you going to say, in spite of everything, Lord, you're a good God and it is well with my soul? Because I know Jesus. I mean, again, anybody can praise God when the sun is shining, the birds are singing. It takes a true Christian who is really connected to God through his Holy Spirit to weather adversity and go, God, I don't care what the, as Job said, I don't care if you slay me. I will not doubt your character. You are a good God, regardless of what my circumstances say, because the devil's going to want to use your circumstances to whisper in your ear, if God was really a good God, would he be letting you go through this? If God really loved you, would he be putting you through this? And if you don't have it nailed down in your heart, yes, I believe that my God is a good God who loves me. Why do I believe it? Not because of my circumstances, but because he says it in his word. That's why I believe it. So Israel begins her, world, her wilderness journey with a song. In fact, it's the first song mentioned in, in the scripture. 
Verse 1 again, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord, and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Thrown into the sea, not into the marshy pond. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. And I hate to keep beating a dead camel, but you see the, the language here? Just read your Bibles and take it for what is being said. Sometimes when people try to explain away God's word and his miracles, they actually wind up having to believe greater miracles than just what God has said. I mean, the idea that I don't believe God made the heavens and the earth, I don't believe God created all of us, I believe an explosion happened, you know, 8 billion or 10 billion years ago, and here we are, through an infinite number of random mutations and genetic accidents, here we are. You know what? That takes more faith to believe in my mind than just believing that God, a super-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God, designed us, created us, and here we are. That takes less faith for me than to believe an explosion, all these accidents and the genetics, and here we are. As somebody said from, uh, from goo to you, that's evolution. Uh, no, I believe we were made in God's image. So uh, for those who teach that Moses and the children of Israel didn't cross the Red Sea, but a marshy swamp to the north, a few inches deep, called the Sea of Reeds, this song becomes a problem. Now I'm going to leave it there. Uh, because it's just too much to get into, and I don't want to rush it, but um, you want to come back next time. There are some incredible lessons that I really wanted to try to get to tonight, but I knew that if I did, I'd have to rush through them. They're too important to rush through, all right? So come on back next week, and we'll pick it up in verse 6, chapter 15, continue on our study in the book of Exodus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, for your word, which is true. We thank you, Father, that you are a good God who loves us with all of your heart. And even though our circumstances don't always indicate you're a good and loving God, you're using them to grow us. And sometimes that's difficult. But give us grace, Lord, not to listen to the devil who would try to whisper into our ear that you are not a good and loving God because of what we're going through. But that, Lord, we would fall back on your word and the things that you have said about yourself, that you are good, and that you know the thoughts that you think toward us. They're thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give us a future and a hope. You're working, Lord. You're working for good. And so thank you, Lord. Give us grace to be men and women of faith. And we thank you, Lord, for all your goodness toward us. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.